Good morning, Rogers Park. That, that, that music built up some anticipation in me there, sitting listening to it. It is so good to be with you this morning. My name is Phil Adams, one of the pastors here at Park. As I came in this morning, I have met so many people that are here for the first time, which is just so cool. Um, so we are just so glad that, that you're here. Please know, as Lee has already said, that you're welcome. Please leave today knowing that you are welcome. And we trust that, 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 that you're encouraged this morning, that you meet God this morning, um, and you rejoice with us this morning. We are in the middle of a series called The Pursuit as we go through the book of, of Jonah. Um, and one of the things that stands out, if, if, you're visit, if you're here for the first time, you're going to pick up a little bit of the story. But if you've been here the last couple of weeks, one of the things that stands out in the book of Jonah is that it, it just seems like God's really invested in this guy. He kind of does a lot of stuff and God just doesn't leave him alone. Firstly, God speaks directly to Jonah. Then when God or Jonah disobeys God, instead of moving on, God literally spares no expense going after Jonah. God stirs up a storm in the ocean that makes sure that, that and then he makes sure that in the middle of that boat they cast some lots, they have a little game of poker, and they make sure that he is the winner. And then next thing, he's getting thrown out into the sea, and God sends a fish to go and, and catch him. And I think when we read stories like this, there's a little bit of a lingering question in us when we see how invested God is in Jonah. We, we think, is God as invested in my life as he is invested in the life of Jonah? Is he, in, in, is he as invested in my life as much as he's invested in the life of Jonah as I ride to work on the CTA, as I wake up my kids, is God invested in my life? As I plan this coming week of ministry, as I get a new job, or as I lose an old job, as I see an old friend, as I struggle to make new friends, as I come quietly to church on my own this morning and sit by myself, is God as invested in my life as he is in the life of Jonah? My answer for you this morning is yes. Yes, he is. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. And please stand as we read. As we read God's word. We've been praying this morning in the prayer meeting, praying expectantly that God would speak, and we know he speaks through his word. So listen up. Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you've chosen to reveal yourself and speak. So, God, as we come to you this morning, would you, uh, would you mold our hearts, God? Would we um, leave today having heard from you? May we leave being transformed by your word, God. We pray for our children right now in the child care. God, would you bless them? Would you teach them this morning also, God? May we be a people here in Rogers Park who are being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. In your name, amen. Please take your seats. In, in, the, book, in the book of Jonah, we've got two characters. There's only two, two, two names that are mentioned in the, in the whole book. We've got extras, we've got background roles like the sailors, but ultimately we've got two characters. And I want to retell this story so far by looking at these two characters, and you can work out for yourself who these two characters are. When one character speaks, his voice is limited to how far his sound waves can reach, unless he's got a mic. The other character can speak and be heard by anyone in any place at any time. And so God spoke to Jonah in real time and space and told him, go to Nineveh, go to those people who have rejected me and tell them about me. One character, he, he, travel, he is limited to traveling at how, how fast his feet can carry him or how fast something else moves on which he is on top of. The other character has no need to travel anywhere because he is already everywhere. And so when Jonah disobeys God and he runs from the presence of God, instead of going to Nineveh, he runs in the opposite direction to Tarshish. But at every step, God is as close to him as he was on his first step. When one character needs something, he has to give up of some of his resources in exchange for what he needs. The other character has no need of anything and yet has infinite and endless resources at his disposal. He dispends of energy but never loses energy. And so when, God, when Jonah gets on the ship to go to Tarshish and flee God's presence, his resources are depleted because he had to buy a ticket for the boat. Well, God is upholding all of life and creation day after day without his resources ever decreasing. When one character becomes tired, he needs to find somewhere to stop, lie down, and take a nap. The other character is entirely self-sufficient and has no concept of tiredness. And so when Jonah is on the ship, he needs to go down to the lower decks to take a nap to recharge his batteries while God, without any effects on his energy level, stirs up a storm that tosses the boat around the ocean. When one character sees no solution to his problems, he gives up, while the other is relentless. He never stops. He never fails in accomplishing what he sets out to do. He is unstoppable. And so when Jonah decides to give up from running, he gets himself thrown into the ocean to end it all. Well, God sends a fish to catch Jonah because even giving up is only an option when God says it is. Let me summarize this situation for you. Jonah cannot swim. God can do anything. I think that's a little funny. Jonah cannot swim. God can do anything. 
Jonah hasn't got a penny. God owns everything. Jonah is somewhere. God is everywhere. Jonah can stand on a ship. God can sink a ship. Jonah is tired. God has no concept of tiredness. Jonah gave up. God never gives up. Let's get one thing straight this morning from the outset as we look at the book of Jonah. When we read chapter 1, what keeps us reading is not the question, who's going to win? There is no intrigue. There is no tension in asking the question, do you, do you think if Jonah does a hard left, he might lose God? The tension is not in who is going to win. God can do anything. God owns everything. God is everywhere. God never gives up. But where there is intrigue is in asking the question, what is God doing? What is God revealing about himself? When we move from chapter 1 and we go into chapter 2, which we read this morning, the first thing we see is that there's a change of genre. There's a change of style in, in writing. In chapter 1, we, we have a narrative, or we have a story. Do you know what a good story does? It, it takes you somewhere. It takes you out of your present reality, and it places you into another reality. It lifts you out of your seat. It plants you in another world. You've forgotten you're reading something. You've forgotten you're watching something. Two worlds have merged. You're sitting in a movie theater with a pint of Coke and a bag of popcorn, but you're not. You're storming a castle. You're fighting to survive. You're getting the girl. You're putting a man on the moon. You're sitting watching, but your mind is somewhere entirely different. That's what's happening in Jonah chapter 1. We're reading a story we're taking into the, into the life of Jonah. And, and yet a, a narrative or a story has a, a limit because narratives are always moving. Stories are always moving. We're moving from one scene to the other. If you read it from Joppa to Tarshish, from the bottom of the ship to standing on top of the ship, from calm seas to stormy seas to stink, sinking in the seas to sitting in the belly of a fish. Stories are always moving. Narratives, they do a lot of things. They, they carry us through a timeline. They can stir our emotions. But narratives do not leave us time to stop. They don't leave us time to stop and linger in our emotions. Narratives don't leave the time to take one thought and immerse ourselves within it. But poetry does. And in chapter 2, we have poetry. Ruth and I, a number of weeks ago, we went to see the movie The Greatest Showman. Hmm? <laughs> Jay was vulnerable last week talking about his time playing pool and bars. I'm being vulnerable about going to see musicals. <laughs> Just a little glimpse into how Phil spends his time. <laughs> but when you, watch, when you watch a musical like The Greatest Showman, there's a, there's a storyline where people are, are communicating and they're, they're talking to one another. But then, then something happens or there is a thought that needs expressed without moving on. And then there is this, in my opinion, a very awkward moment when I usually begin to cringe because you think Hugh Jackman is about to say something, but instead he decides to sing something. <laughs> and it's kind of weird. You say, here we go. <laughs> but poetry exists. Singing, singing exists. Art exists because sometimes just saying something once, then moving on, it just isn't enough. Sometimes you have to stop and you have to create it. You have to paint it. Sometimes you have to stop and express it. Sometimes you have to sing it. 
So what we have to do this morning is figure out what made Jonah sing, what moment in this story was worthy of prayer-filled poetry. And I would say it's a safe bet that when we discover the moment that made Jonah sing, we'll discover what God is doing and what God is revealing. We're going to look at this poem in two ways because the poem does two things. It places us within a, a specific situation. It describes a, a situation and it proclaims a timeless truth. It gives us a context to get within and it gives us something to remember always. What's neat to poetry is that though, although it is written and it is expressed in a real situation, poetry itself is timeless. There's an intentionality within these words that says when you find yourself in this kind of situation, these words will ring as true as the day they were first written. That is why when we read the book of Psalms, our souls resonate so much with the words that are there because it is God's gift to us as examples of how we can express ourselves to God in the highs and the lows and desperation in any generation. And on days like the day Jonah is having, which is not a good day, when he is literally hitting rock bottom. Every verse speaks in this poem. It speaks about Jonah going down. Down is one of the good Northern Irish words. You guys more say down. I try to put in American down. down. We say down. So just so you know what I'm saying. I'm saying down. <laughs> verse, <laughs> verse 3 says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Verse 4, the deep surrounded me. Verse 6, I went down to the land. Verse 7, my life was fainting away. Jonah, on this day, is literally, he is sinking. And he's sinking because when he was running from God, he found himself on a ship in a storm with a bunch of sailors trying to figure out who's to blame for this, this, this storm in the oceans. And when the sailors, they turn to Jonah, they discover that he is the one disobeying the God of heaven, the one who made the seas and all of the land. And they ask him, what do we need to do to see these seas calmed? And Jonah tells them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sailors, they don't want, they don't want to do that. So they go back and they try to row out of the storm. But the storm, you'll read, gets worse until they reluctantly agree to pick up Jonah and hurl him into the waves. Listen as I read from verse 5. As he hits the waves, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is sinking. Jonah's in trouble. The prayer-filled poetry is a reflection of Jonah's time spent drowning. Seaweed is entangling him. He is at the bottom of the sea. Sunlight is fading away. Life is fading away. Jonah's in trouble. Or to be more accurate with you this morning, Jonah is in sin. Or to be even more accurate this morning with you, Jonah is sinking in the consequences of his sin. Church, Jonah is not going through a tough season. He's not in a rough spot. Jonah is experiencing the consequences of sin. Now, get comfortable in your seats. <laughs> I want to go and take a few minutes here to think about the consequences of sin. And this may feel like I'm standing on your toes a little bit. I know, I know. 
This doesn't sound like much fun on one of the first days of spring, <laughs> but I promise we will pop out the other side. Get comfortable, but we will pop out the other side. Are you with me? Okay, let's go. I don't know about you, but I can quickly and easily identify a struggle in my life. But I find it much more difficult to identify a consequence of my sin in my life. Does that resonate with you? I don't know about you, but I can quickly and easily identify a struggle, a tough spot in my life, something to complain about. But I find it much more difficult to identify a consequence of my sin in my life. How's your marriage, Phil? I just caught eyes with my wife as I said that. That was funny. How's your marriage, Phil? We're going through a tough spot. What I don't say, or what I don't think, is you know I'm really seeing the consequences of not loving my wife well. How are your finances, Phil? Things are tight right now. What I don't say or think is, you know, I'm really seeing the consequences of making decisions based on greed and status. How are the kids, Phil? Terrible. (laughs) Terrible twos, terrible threes, terrible fours. When aren't they terrible? I joke. What I don't say or think is, you know, I'm really seeing the consequences of expecting my wife to be a mother and a father. I don't know about you, but I can quickly and easily identify a struggle in my life, but I find it much more difficult to identify a consequence for my sin in my life. And the problem with this is that when I tell myself I need to persevere and I need to push through it, I actually need to repent. And when I tell myself I need to wait it out, wait it out until people change and circumstances change, I actually need to change. That's what Jonah is experiencing, the consequences of his sin. That isn't the only thing or the only way that we feel the consequences of sin. Remember, we, I said we will pop out the other side. We just got to push through. When we refer to the consequences of sin, we usually think of it like a, like a balancing act or we're on a balancing beam where we spend the majority of, of our lives on the beam. And yet sometimes we, we fall off when we land in some consequences And we need to quickly jump back on. Phew. We fall off the beam. We fall off the wagon. Some people fall off the wagon more than others. Thank goodness I'm not one of them. And that is true in the sense that there are times in our lives when we directly land in the consequences of a clearly defined sin. I shared some examples. But there's a deeper consequence to sin, which is harder to define, and it is frankly more unsettling because difficult situations aren't only the consequences of our sin. Sin is the consequence of our sin. Our envy is a consequence of our greed. Our selfishness is a consequence of our pride. Our anger is a consequence of our desire to control. Our sin runs so much deeper than falling off the beam or falling off the wagon. Our sin runs so much deeper than these concrete incidents that we can think of where we set sail on a ship to Tarshish away from God because every day we get on tiny little ships that lead us to other tiny little ships in the rhythms of our lives, so much so that we've become numb to it. We set sail on our lust. 
We set sail on our pride. We set sail on our selfishness. As the seaweed became entangled around Jonah's head, sin has become entangled around our lives, so much so that sin is not so much something that we do, but a state of being in which we are sinking in. Nearly there. There's one last thing or way that we feel the consequences of sin. We don't only actively commit sin. We aren't only engaged in a state of sin. We find ourselves in a world broken by sin. And so we experience the consequence of a broken system and a broken world. We see the consequence of brokenness in sickness. In disasters. We see it in systemic evil that becomes ingrained within our fabric of society. As the seaweed became entangled around Jonah's head, sin has become entangled around our countries and our cultures. Our choices, large and small, the choices of humanity as a whole, have got us thrown overboard and we can't swim. That is the universal situation that this poem describes. We've got ourselves thrown overboard and we can't swim. But thank God, that is not, that is not the timeless truth that this poem is proclaiming. It is the situation in which it is in, but it is not the truth that this poem is proclaiming. To understand what this poem is proclaiming, we need to understand a little bit more about Hebrew poetry. I did a lot of study in poetry this week. Usually we we will define Western poetry by the way the words rhyme. Jack and Jill went up the hill. Well, Hebrew poetry is different in that it is not the words that rhyme, it is the ideas that rhyme. It's not the pairing of words that create the rhythm. It's the pairing of ideas, the pairing of thoughts that create the rhythm. So what would it look like if we looked at this poem and we didn't group it by the words and how it rhymed, but we grouped it by the ideas that are spoken of? And you may be wondering, what are you talking about? There should be something comes up on the screen. It still looks a little bit confusing, but I'm going to read it. This is the rhyming of ideas within this poem. It's there. Let me read. Again, death, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, hope, and he answered me. Death, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, hope, and you heard my voice. Death, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet hope, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Death. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Hope, yet you brought me up from the pit, O Lord, my God, death, when my life was fainting away. Hope, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Earlier we thought about the limits of stories because stories are always moving. We're moving from the bottom of the ship to standing on top of the ship, from calm seas to stormy seas to sinking in the seas. We thought about how narratives do a lot of things. They carry us through a timeline. They can stir our emotions. But narratives do not leave the time to take one truth that needs proclaimed and create a space to be immersed within that one truth. But poetry does. Church, Jonah went to a lot of trouble to to create something. He went to a lot of trouble to create something that would communicate something very simple. 
This morning I'm going to a lot of trouble to communicate something very simple that in sin there is hope. In sin there is hope. In sin there is hope. Are you hearing me? In sin there is hope. Poetry exists. Singing exists. Art exists because sometimes just saying something once and then moving on is not enough. Sometimes you have to stop and create it and paint it. I don't know your story this morning. I don't know how you're experiencing the consequences of sin this morning. I don't know if you fell off the wagon again this week. I don't know if your eyes are being opened to the tiny little ships we sail on every day running from God. I don't know if you're just feeling the brokenness of living in a broken world. But I know you can't swim. And yet more importantly, I also know in a sin-sick world there is hope. Amen. We've been reading through this poem and seeing ourselves very clearly within it as individuals who know God's heart and yet, yet run from it, people who fall off the wagon, even we try so desperately to stay on it. And yet in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus, Jesus also sees himself in this story when he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will I, the Son of Man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was saying that in the same way that that Jonah was practically dead for three days in the belly of a fish, he's saying, so will I be dead for three days before coming back to life. You see, back when Jonah was on the ship in the storm, the sailors, they, they recognized something. They recognized something which by God's sovereignty this morning would paint for us a picture of the gospel. They recognized that somebody needed to take the hit. They recognized that somebody needed to take the blame as the waves battered against the side of the boat and it was only a matter of time before they all got hurled into the sea and they knew they couldn't swim. They tried to row out of the storm, but it was hopeless until with, with some persuasion, they realized that by the death of one, all could be saved. By the death of one, all could be saved. Does that sound familiar, church? Jesus was crucified in a tomb, dead for three days, not because he sank in his own sin, but because he sank in ours, in our place. Not because he couldn't swim, but because we couldn't, and he chose not to. He died on the cross because he gave himself up and because we threw him overboard. So that by the death of one, all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. And the final line of Jonah's poem could come true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the gospel of Rogers Park. In sin there is hope. In sin there is hope. In sin there is hope. I don't want to leave it there this morning, though, because I think there is something else that we need reminded of. It's something ingrained within the gospel that we easily take for granted. But in these two chapters of Jonah, God makes it, makes it explicit. I'm so glad when God makes things clear. I'm so glad when we read God's word, he makes things clear. At the beginning, we asked the question, 
What's God doing in this story? What, what is God revealing? And, and the answer is this, that God is entirely sovereign and God is entirely good. God is 100% in control and God is 100% good. When we read through chapter one, we, we begin reading about these two characters. We read about Jonah who can't swim, but we read about God who can do anything. Jonah who hasn't got a penny, God who owns everything. Jonah who is somewhere, God who is everywhere. Jonah who is tired, God who has only ever been awake. Jonah gave up, God never gives up. But Rogers Park, if that is all that God is, it doesn't help us. If all God is is powerful, it doesn't help Jonah. We don't keep reading this story to see who is going to win. We know Jonah running from God does not make sense. We keep reading because we don't know God's character. Or more specifically, we don't know if God's good. We don't know what God is going to do with Jonah when he catches him. Is that you this morning? You know you're running from God. And you know it doesn't make sense. And in the back of your mind, you're wondering, what's God going to do one day? In verse 7, we have the initial moment that made Jonah stop. The moment that inspired his poem. And it reads like this, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and I prayed to the Lord. Before Jonah called out to God for help, he remembered who God was. And, and it makes sense in our minds that at that point when Jonah called out to God, that God then in response sent a fish to rescue him. And yet, when we look back to, to when Jonah has just been thrown into the waves, verse 17 opens with this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, but would be, what would be a better translation of that verse would be, and the Lord had appointed a great fish. The Lord had, past tense, the Lord had already appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. I don't know if you're seeing what's happening here, but all through chapter one, we visualize a man that's running from God and it looks like God is orchestrating Jonah's destruction when actually he has already appointed Jonah's salvation. And now we realize God is not swimming behind Jonah, he is waiting below Jonah. For all practical understanding of what we're reading, God is pursuing Jonah as he runs and yet God is always two steps ahead of him. What's going on? God is not just chasing Jonah, he is also going ahead of Jonah and protecting him and saving Jonah. He's not just chasing him, church, he's loving him. In Jonah's poem, we have the coming together of a God who owns and controls the oceans in verse 3 and is our only hope of steadfast love in verse 8. A love that will never relent. Friends, I'm not trying to fit God into your head this morning. I'm just trying to tell you the facts. You can't shake him, as Jay said, because he is behind you and he is ahead of you. You can't shake him because he is loving you, he is sovereign, he is God, and he is good. 
I do not have words to express to you this morning how big God is. Trying to communicate how big God is is trying to visualize the size of the universe. It does not fit in our minds. God was never meant to fit in our minds. We were only ever made for worship. Ephesians 4.1 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Rogers Park The gospel and the good news of Jesus hinges on one event when Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And yet the cross is is the central part of God's wider plan, which was conceived before the creation of the world when God committed himself to bending the resources of this universe for the good of his people whom he had not yet created. That is a mind-boggling thought. Before the foundation of the world, God committed to using all of his sovereignty for the good of his people and for his glory. God is a God with infinite resources. We've learned that this morning. And infinite power over those resources. And he uses them to work in your life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is bending the resources of this world for your good. I hear people often say, you know, this season, this season I'm going through, it's hard and but I know God's teaching me something. I'm, I'm struggling. I know God is, but I know God is molding me. Friends, God isn't just teaching you. He's loving you. He isn't just working in your life. He's loving you. When God wouldn't let go of Jonah, he wasn't just chasing him. He was loving him. Do not believe that God is simply powerful. Do not believe that he is simply powerful and orchestrating your life. Your heavenly father is patiently loving you with all of the resources at his disposal. He knows about the struggles you have as you ride on the CTA to work. He knows the weight that you're feeling as you try to figure out your ministry. He knows you don't know what school to send your kids. He knows that you fell off the wagon this week. He knows the little ships that you can't seem to stop riding every day. He knows about the results that you're waiting for from the hospital. He knows and he uses all of it for your good. So that one day you may be presented holy and blameless in his sight. Is God as invested in your life as he was in Jonah? I want to tell you this morning, yes. Yes, he is. He does not sleep. He owns everything. He can do anything. That is steadfast, patient, relentless love. We can spend a lot of time questioning Jonah's commitment to God in this book, and quite frankly, his commitment should be questioned at times, and you're going to find more about that in the coming weeks. And yet, when I think about Jonah and how he wrote this book, I think what he's saying is, don't look at my commitment to God, look at God's commitment to me. It's steadfast, it's patient, it's relentless. And for those with us this morning that are still running, it's my prayer that today God stops you. One final thought. I wonder, and I just wonder, when I think about the entirety of history, when I read through this book from cover to cover, when I use this book as my lens to look out at this world, 
and the cultures and the complexities and the, the, the people and all of the unknowns in my life and in the world, when I think about this world and my life as the back of some kind of messy tapestry with threads overlining one another that looks like, quite frankly, like a mess, could it all be about a God who is one day going to turn over that tapestry to reveal a beautiful picture that proclaims without a shadow of a doubt that God has always only ever been entirely sovereign and entirely good. If God is as big as Jonah says he is, he is big enough for that. The book of Jonah is about a God who is bigger than you, stronger than you, faster than you, wiser than you, kinder and more compassionate and full of mercy a God who is always two steps ahead of you, a God who is always two steps behind you. Asking the question, do you remember who I am? That I am sovereign and I am good. So do you trust me enough to obey me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for your commitment to us. God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your kindness. God, we thank you for your mercy and your steadfast love that God is being revealed to Jonah. God, would you transform our hearts when we go out for the people confidently obeying you, knowing, God, that you're at work in our lives, that you're, you're shaping us and you're molding us, not just because you're powerful, but because you love us. May that encourage us this morning. May that be something that we can celebrate in your name.